Coming to you from New York City, it's the Friars Club Podcast. Established in 1904, the Friars Club is the birthplace of the celebrity roast and has counted the likes of Frank Sinatra, Jimmy Fallon, Billy Crystal, Barbara Streisand, and Johnny Carson among its members. So come on in for a drink and some laughs with your host, Joe Sibilia. Hello and welcome to the Friars Club Podcast. This is your host, Joe Sibilia, and joining me today is legendary television producer, creator of Rowan and Martin's Laughing, and the author of Still Laughing, A Life and Comedy from the creator of Laughing, and his name is George Schlotter. George, thank you so much for joining me today. How are you? Nice to talk to you, Joe. I love your last name. Well, I was just telling you before uh, we got started that if you like my last name, I guess I shouldn't change it. I always thought maybe it would be too hard to pronounce, but I'm honored to hear that you like it. So thank you for the for your kind words. I appreciate that. I love it. I'm glad to talk to you. I'm a big fan of the Friars Club. Well, this leads me to my first question for you, which is how exactly your association with the Friars Club first began. I was about 20 years old, which is about 75 years ago, right? Right. How long have they been doing the roasts? In the current form we know them as, I'd have to say the 40s, about 1949. Well, anyhow, okay. Uh, My my first week uh, at NBC, I was invited to a Friars Club roast. And I sat there, and the honoree was Jack Benny. And the language absolutely shocked me. I was 20 years old. But what shocked me was to have Mr. Benny in the room when that language was being used. And I sat there just horrified, right? And uh, so they went on and on and on. And finally, they introduced Jack Benny, who stood up, and he just said, well, the place collapsed, right? Because they were, everybody was embarrassed to have heard that language in front of Mr. Benny. And he said, well, and the place, and when the laughter died down, he said, Apparently, the only two words left for me that have not been used so far this evening are cunt and cohabitate. The place absolutely collapsed. I mean, that was all. Nobody else could say anything after that. But uh, but in front of Jack Benny was horrified. Anyway, that's one of my first memories of the Friars Club. It's funny you mention Jack Benny, because I've heard Ed McMahon talk about this in uh, the Friars Club documentary, Let Me and I Hear Laughter, which was directed by a friend of mine by the name of Dean Ward, who's been on the show. And Ed McMahon talked about one of the first events he went to for the Friars was for Jack Benny, and to hear him go up and say four-letter words was just astounding because everybody thought of Jack Benny as this clean comedian, but at the Friars Roast, everybody turned into the raunchiest sort of entertainer you could possibly imagine. And I guess it must have been a shock for you when you were at uh, that particular event. Yeah, I, mean, I was in shock. But Jack Benny and I wound up very good friends for a long time. He came on laughing, and one night he said, Goldie, he said, I'm so fond of you. He said, I would say after the show tonight, we, we go out and we have dinner we have a couple of drinks and some laughs and Goldie said well I don't see any harm in that and Benny said oh I wish you could well <laughs> it went on and on and on I loved him he was a good friend and uh, well, a rare commodity today so how are you doing Friars Club is an excellent subject to be talking about uh, well you know I am uh, 27 years old George uh, but since we're talking on the phone you can't see just how young I actually look you'd probably think I'm even younger than that but the Friars Club has just been a subject that I've always been fascinated with and uh, I just love that era of show business and I uh, want to keep it going and I uh, want to keep the club going and uh, keep the legacy alive and uh, you have played your part in that because I know 
back, I say, around 2001, you produced a Friars Club event for the uh, Lifetime Achievement Award honoring Aaron Spelling. How did you get tapped to produce that event for the Friars Club? Well, I thought Friars Club could have asked me to do anything. I submitted material to the Friars Club all of the time because it was a lone place that was devoted entirely to comedy. And when it was started, it was the only place that was being done, you know. Now it's fairly commonplace. But they just did an event in Jamestown uh, where they honored all the comics. And it's a whole collection they have in Jamestown. And they went back and they I gave them a lot of material and I also gave them a donation. So anyway, they wound up naming the theater the George Slaughter and Jolene Brand Slaughter Theater. We're devoted entirely just to the stand-up comics. I was going to get to that, and congratulations, first of all. That's a, a tremendous honor, and that's a great location. I, I have read much about it. I know people have been there. I have unfortunately not made it out there myself, and I intend to. Now that I know the theater's name for you, i got to go see it. You're 27 years old? Yes. Yeah. When Frank Sinatra met me, he said, I have ties older than this guy. So, you know, <laughs> Well, that's a great story. you got to tell how you met Frank Sinatra. This was at MCA, correct? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, Frank and I wound up, I mean, I, I could make him laugh. And if you could make Sinatra laugh, you could get by with anything. And I was rare because I could make him laugh. And uh, every time he got in trouble with Sinatra, I made him laugh. And finally, finally, as a result, his wife asked me to do one of the eulogies at his funeral. And I said, please, Barbara, I don't, I can't. She said, please, you must. I said, okay, so long as I don't have to follow Gregory Peck. Sure enough, here comes the funeral, and, uh, and now Gregory Peck stands up and introduces George Slaughter. And I was mortified, because then I was introduced by the bishop, and I didn't know what to say. So I said, thank you, Your Honor. Well, the place went crazy, because I <laughs> talked to a lot more judges than I talked to bishops. <laughs> I mean, my, my last memory of Sinatra is getting a scream when I called the bishop Your Honor. <laughs> well, you've worked uh, with a very notable bishop who was a member of the Friars Club, who I wanted to ask you about. That was Joey Bishop. But who do you remember yeah. about him? What, what were your experiences with Joey Bishop like? Because I know some people in show business were not necessarily the fondest of him. Did you have good experiences with Joey? Well, it, it was easy not to be fond of Joey Bishop because <laughs> uh, the world was his victim, you know. And he was dry, and he was uh, cold, uh, but he was funny. And... Uh, so humor, humor is a, a difficult thing, you know. It's a two-edged sword. Uh, for everybody who laughs, there's somebody who doesn't. And Joey Bishop was a master of his brand of comedy, and some people were not fond of it. I was, uh, uh, but he was—he was not an easy guy to to laugh. He was not an easy guy to like. He was an easy guy to laugh at, you know. I like Joey Bishop a lot. I saw a great bit that he did with Regis Philbin on Laughing. This was, of course, around the time that he was doing his late-night talk show opposite Johnny Carson. I encourage anybody to go look that up because that's a, a great piece from uh, from your show, which was, of course, legendary in the world of comedy. Yep. Comedy is a necessity now, even more now than it has been in the past. Today, we have to be funny. We have to laugh. It's the only panacea. It's the only Novocaine for society. And uh, so it's now... It was, it was desirable before, and now it's absolutely necessary that we laugh. Being that you have worked with so many of the great comedians over the years, and your whole, uh, or not your whole career, but much of your career, I would say, has been devoted uh, to producing different sorts of uh, comedy and variety shows, why do you think that the roast format that the Friars Club uh, really invented uh, has uh, continued to be so, 
uh, beloved. And 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 what do you think of the way that they've been reproduced now in, in the world of Comedy Central and uh, other outlets? Do you like the way the roasts are done now as opposed to the way they were many years ago? Well, many years ago, many years ago, the language was a shocker, and not many people were using that. Now today at late night, you know, uh, you hear every, all the language and all the subject matter. It was better. With, you're 27 years old. Jesus Christ. When you started out, you had to be careful of what you said. Today, in order to get the audience's attention, the comics are vulgar and dirty and use dirty language, and it's unfortunate because they're, they're funnier without it. You know, uh, Robin Williams, I don't think Robin Williams ever used that kind of language, but he was funny. Comedy is comedy's a necessary ingredient in our society and in our evolution. And that's why I'm proud of you, because 27, there's some hope. <laughs> Let's hope I live up to the expectations. Uh, you know, I mentioned Aaron Spelling earlier, and uh, and you were involved uh, with a Lifetime Achievement Award honoring him. And you and Aaron Spelling go way, way back to very early in your life. How did you first meet Aaron Spelling? I was I was going with a young coloratura, and he was he was band boy on the Ada Leonard show, which was a talent show. And every week they had talent. I was dating this coloratura who won every single week. And so he said to me, and he was a band boy on the show, and he said, Georgie says, your, your girlfriend keeps winning every week, and we're not going to have a, a final, because the, so she has to you know, get, get out of here for one week so we have some finals. So anyway, it was Aaron Spelling, and, uh, and he said, why don't we get into business together? Had I listened to him, I'd be a multi-multi-millionaire today. <laughs> I he think was, you did pretty well for yourself. <laughs> Not a very funny fellow, but he was cute. Yeah. What a genius. I mean, uh, how, how can one person come up with Fantasy Island, Love Boat? Yeah, I don't believe he came up with it, but I believe he surrounded himself with people who could give him that kind of input, you know? And and uh, there's one, it's a good thing to be able to create comedy. It's even better if you can find people to help you create it. It's very elusive, see, because for every joke, there's a victim. And uh, you've got to be careful. And uh, it's a very elusive art form. But it's worthwhile, because there's no better feeling... Well, there's one better feeling, but getting a laugh <laughs> is one of the best feelings you can have. I know nothing about that. I, I'm too I'm too young and too innocent to be hearing that, George. I was never either one. I was never young and I was never innocent, but go ahead. <laughs> I, I, I think I'm, I'm starting to like you a lot. Go ahead. <laughs> I appreciate it. You know, I was so interested to read in your new book, Still Laughing, it's called, and I encourage everybody to go out and read it because it's a, a fun read with a lot of great anecdotes, so many of the different people you worked with. One of them was a member of the Friars Club, Ronald Reagan, and in 1954, yep. you produced his nightclub act at the Last Frontier Hotel in Las Vegas. How were you tasked with uh, helping to put together his nightclub act, and what do you remember about what happened with him and uh, his opener for that uh, particular sure, sure. engagement? You've done a lot of research, which is a very Refreshing quality. I was. Uh, I had worked with MCA, and Lou Wasserman called me. He was head of MCA, and he said, "I want you to book Ronald Reagan into Vegas because I was booking a lot of shows at the Frontier Hotel." And I said, "Mr. Wasserman, he doesn't do anything." Wasserman said, "It's not my problem. Book him into Vegas." So I, I found an act. The uh, five guys, right? And I replaced the lead guy with Ronald Reagan, and it was a song and dance patter act, right? And Ronald Reagan was, and it was not very good because. Uh, the man is about as, as humorous as a trap door, you know. But <laughs> we did this. We did this act with Ronald Reagan at the, 
and uh, I realize I'm in trouble. So, But I remember that he had done a movie with Bedtime for Bonzo where he worked with a chimp. So I went out and I found this act, Five Gorillas, and he I put them as the opening act. And it was wonderful. But the, the show, they ran it. They had a half an hour in their contract. That's all they did. Could only do a half an hour, no more, no less. And so the show was running too long. So they said to me, you've got to cut some time. I said to Mr. Reagan, you've got to cut some time. He said, I can't touch this act. So the only alternative was to take some time out of these gorillas. So I could, they couldn't cut the act because it was set. They had to do exactly the same thing. So I put them in the hallway to do the first ten minutes of the act, then I opened the door, and then they went out on stage. And it was, it was the chimps were confused at first, but it was funny. And so one night they said, hold the show. But I'd already started this gorilla act in the hallway. There's no way to say to a chimp, take two. And so uh, they did whatever. When the people finally said, go ahead and do the show, we opened the door and we turned five gorillas loose on stage. And they were in the lights. They were in the, all over. The, and they sat down. One of, them, one of them drank a bottle of tequila. It was pandemonium in the Frontier Hotel. And I finally got the chimps locked up. And uh, the owner said, that's the funniest thing I ever saw. Tell them just to do that. I said, you can't tell five chimps take two. So anyhow, I said, so if the, the, the answer was, the only solution was, for Mr. Reagan to cut uh, 10 minutes out of his act, for which he never forgave me. I, I wound up good friends with Nancy Reagan, but Ronald Reagan never forgave me for booking him into a show with five monkeys. That, it was <laughs> funny, I'll tell you. <laughs> well, I, guess, I guess you never did get the opportunity then to work with uh, J. Fred Muggs, Phoebe, BBB, no, any other uh, <laughs> great chip I love dances. the name, you know? <laughs> I'd say, uh, one of the great state, uh, that and Sibilia, two of the great names of all time in show business. <laughs> yeah, well, that's it, yeah. Uh, not only did you have an outrageous incident with the Marquee Chimps, but also with an elephant when you were producing the Steve Lawrence show. Steve Lawrence is a favorite singer of mine, a member of the Friars Club for so many years. Uh, what do you remember about that night uh, in New York when you were producing his television show? CBS, CBS decided to do the Steve Lawrence show, but it was the last show booked. It was going to be on Monday night at 10 o'clock after three hours of variety. And it was the last show. It was done in New York in black and white. And there was just nobody interested in Steve Lawrence or in doing a Steve Lawrence series. But I had done some stuff with Lucy's children when I managed Ciro's. Lucy and Desi would come in all of the time and, and uh, visit Ciro's. So I was friends with Lucy, and I said, would she come to New York and ride an elephant? through Schubert Alley, and she said, why would I do that? I'm not going to go, what, go to New York? She said, are you crazy? And I said, well, okay. But, Lucy, what do I do with this elephant? She said, what elephant? I said, well, the elephant that was going to ride with you and Steve down Schubert Alley. She said, you hired an elephant? I said, yeah, what do I do? She said, all right, God damn it, went. So, anyhow, Lucy came to New York to ride the elephant down Schubert Alley, and I got arrested, and she wouldn't let me to go to L.A. Lucy wouldn't let me go to jail without the elephant. I loved her. <laughs> But it was another one, another one of the adventures I had where something that turned out to be terrible, turned out to be a disaster, wound up uh, part of my glowing, illustrious, semi-famous career, you know. Lucy and the Elephant has loomed large in my memories. Well, uh, certainly, uh, you've had many outrageous ideas, uh, and uh, not the least of which was Laugh-In, which was revolutionary at the time that that went on the air uh, on NBC back in, uh, I guess that was the late 60s. Why do you think Laugh-In was just such a shock to people? And uh, what, do you, what show do you think today we see the most of Laugh-In in, if, if, if you know what I mean? Well, you see Laugh-In in commercials now. You see that kind of brief 
staccato editing. But what that was a, again an accident. NBC had nothing to put on Monday night at eight o'clock. They were getting killed by Lucille Ball and Gunsmoke, one and two, and so there was no rating at all left for NBC. And uh, they said, could I put anything on there until they could get a real show ready? And I said, yeah, I've got this group of young character people. NBC didn't mean to buy Laugh-In. They bought it because it cost nothing, and they could put it on immediately. And so a woman by the name of Carolyn Raskin developed editing techniques that are now commonplace. You know, you see now the staccato flash-cut editing. But at that point, it was impossible because we had to do it in a very strange editing technique. So we put Laugh-In on the air, and nobody noticed for about two weeks. And at about the third week, they said, wait a minute, something's happening here. It literally changed television because it captured the shrinking attention span of, of, the, of the public. And uh, you didn't need to do the whole joke. You just did the punchline and you went on. So uh, laughing was another mistake that went well. And, uh, boy, we, did we have a good time or what. It, it changed television. It changed. Now you see the effects of laughing in the commercials and all the other shows, but laughing was the first one. And, and now you have TikTok, which is <laughs> even more staccato than you could possibly believe. I can't even, I can't even sit and watch it on my phone without being overwhelmed because it just keeps coming at you. But, uh, but clearly, uh, laughing was uh, uh, revolutionary in so many ways. And uh, laughing, you were able to get so many of the great entertainers of that. I got them in the hallway of NBC. Most of them saying no. I mean, John Wade, we cut camera in the hallway, and John Wade said, I'm not doing that show. They're crazy people. I'm not going to do that show. I taped that and put that on the air. <laughs> and then and, you put uh, him in a bunny suit. Oh, yeah. put it. Well, then eventually, eventually when he realized the effect that his appearance on Laughing It had, he agreed to show up in a blue bunny suit. But a lot of the people doing the show, we got them in the hallway saying they were not going to do it. See... We mistakes are a setback and they're sad, but they can be capitalized on. But my whole career is built on successfully sequencing mistakes, and some of my biggest hits were disasters. What do you think was the biggest surprise in your career of of something that you thought was a mistake at the time but ended up maybe turning out well? Well, hiring Goldie Hawn as an announcer was a beauty. I mean, this adorable, adorable young girl right, who was a dancer. And I, wanted, I went down to talk to her, and she said, but I'm not a comic, I don't do anything. I said, that'll be fine. So we gave her an introduction of Dan Rowan that came out to be the biggest mistake. I mean, she just babbled. She, made, she got very confused. She said, oh, I'm so sorry, I got confused. I'll do it again. I said, no, you won't. That'll be just fine. <laughs> and from then on, Goldie never got to rehearse. Did Dan Rowan and Dick Martin hate each other? <laughs> they didn't hate each other, but they were doing a saloon act, you know. And it was one of the best acts you ever saw. But they didn't really, they were not great friends. They came out, and Dan was classy and elegant, and Dick was always confused. And we sold laugh, and it didn't have a host. But NBC said, you know, I'd buy it if I would have somebody host it. And so Dan and Dick were a very, very funny stand-up act. So we went to Timex, and we sold them. So Dan and Dick opened the show, closed the show, and then did a couple of news items and so forth. In the original, they did a few news items. And the rest of the show kind of happened around them. And it worked because they were very straight. They wore tuxedos. And they were kind of out of the flow of the show. And, uh, and it caught on. So another lucky, lucky event in my shabby career. <laughs> and then Dick Martin, of course, went on to become one of the great television directors in the 70s and the 80s and into the 90s. We, we found a lot of people. And see, if you can look at disasters and look at defeats and look at failures, 
and for the potential that's in them, right? So some of my some of my happiest moments started out as disasters. You know, uh, when I went, I wanted to do the Judy Garland series. She signed to do a show, and uh, so I wanted to do the show, but I didn't know what to do. And uh, so anyhow, I was hired to do the show before I met Judy. So my meeting with Judy, I didn't know what to say. So I said, uh, Miss Garland, I said, I don't care what you may have heard about me. There's no truth to the rumor that I'm difficult. <laughs> and she said, you're difficult? I said, see, even you've heard it. She said, Let's go have a drink. Did you ever yourself have any aspirations to really get in front of the camera in a big way yourself? Because I, your book is hilarious. I've heard you interviewed many times. You yourself are very funny. You could have been a comedian yourself, and you could have been on television as an entertainer. My only attempts at... My only real attempts at comedy was when I was trying to do drama, you know. No, I, I need, you need to laugh. And laughter has always been, you know, maybe the second best feeling you can have. And uh, to hear other laughs, it, it's a very seductive uh, process. And so I've never really been a performer. I, I was uh, just, uh, I, I, I found writers, I found performers, and I found the joy in listening. And uh, uh, my, my early life in Las Vegas was a reason why I should go into comedy because it was kind of a difficult uh, period of uh, crime and punishment when I was working in Vegas. So none of that got in the book. John John Max, who I told all these stories to, sat down and uh, put him. Marta Bose, who was working for me, typed up these endless, endless stories. And then John Max put them in book form uh, uh, and took out all of the stuff that... uh, Mrs. Slaughter didn't want to uh, hear about my early years and my <laughs> trip working in Vegas and my the people that I worked with and the people I knew, which she didn't want to hear about them. And uh, so she wouldn't marry me because she said the people I was hanging out with, I'd be dead before I was 30. And I said, I don't have to hang out with them. She said, you'll never lose them. Well, eventually I did. Well, you do write a bit about that criminal element that was in Las Vegas back in in those days. And many romantics miss that. Uh, era of the city. Why do you think that the criminal element brought such a lure to Las Vegas that maybe it's missing today in some people's well, lives? Well, it, it sounds like the criminal element sounds like uh, you think about the Greenfield jungle. It was not that permissive, not that pervasive. It was, it, it, it was, there was that flavor and there was that element in Vegas in the early days, uh, not the way it was depicted in the movies. You know, uh, they didn't have to do all of that stuff. All they had to do is one of those things once in a while. But uh, I was very young. I was like 20 years old. And uh, um, I could book acts and uh, get by with things that nobody else could at that age. And uh, so that's when I got to know all of those stars and whatever when I was working in, in Vegas. You, you talked about a little bit about your wife, Jolene. Jolene was a very, very funny actress and a great actress. She worked with... All the Ernie Kovacs shows. And that's and right. I loved Jolene. And so when you see the Kovacs shows, she was the girl in the tub. She was the girl. With, she was in a bathtub, and a periscope came up from the bathtub and, and looked around. And so Ernie Ernie never did punchlines, and my whole life was punchlines. And uh, so I tried to convince him, Ernie, you're so close to a punchline. And I would have Jolene there, and, and uh, uh, he would say, no, she's too pretty. We'll just do something visual. And so that's when... Uh, 
I convinced Ernie to do punchlines, and so he called me one night at 11 o'clock, and he was he was taping at NBC, and I was at CBS, and I was at NBC, and he said, come on over, I want to show you something, and he had a raised stage with a car on it, he hit the fender of the car, said, this is a fine automobile, and the car went down through the stage, and he said, now, is that a punchline? I said, yeah, yeah, Ernie, that's a punchline, <laughs> but we wound up very, very good friends, he adored Jolene, and uh, they some of the... Some of the things that's in the museum we did in Jamestown has Ernie and Jolene, which are delightful moments. He was such a wonderful man. It, and but that that was it. one of the great shocks when he passed away. That was oh boy. a horrible oh boy. thing. And Jolene went to bed. The doctor said just, Jolene was pregnant with uh, Maria. The doctor said just have her go to bed and stay there until the baby's born, because it was a real jolt. But uh, we, we the memories we have of Ernie Kovacs, are endless and, and hysterical, you know, and that's part of the collection. I have to go out and see that Jamestown exhibit because the materials that are there, it, it's astounding. My friend was out there. He raved about it. I'm, but That's high on my list of places that I have to go, and I, I'm going to seek that out specifically if I do make it out there. I sent them endless hours of, of, of the comedy that I've done. I stayed away from the variety shows, but I sent them just the comics, and uh, that's why it became... A major part of it, and eventually I wound up, you know, making them a contribution. They named the theater the George Slaughter and Jolene Brand Slaughter Theater, which is one of the honors I cherish most because it's a, an environment devoted entirely to saluting the people who made us laugh. And I don't mean just—I don't mean politicians. <laughs> exactly. I, I read that you attended a Friars event in California in honor of Larry King's 86th birthday a couple of years ago. Uh, what do you remember about Larry King? Were you friends with uh, Larry? Yes. We were very good friends, and he was one of the best communicators we've ever had. And uh, uh, he had a little problem with women. I think he was married six times, seven times to six women. And uh, he was, today when you see television interviews, they always cut away to Larry King. He was he was a major major influence on our industry and a man with a lot of humor by the way, uh, but Larry King was a major part of our lives. I cherish the times I spent with Larry. See, I've had some very very strange friends. You wouldn't imagine me with Judy Garland or me with Ronald Reagan. Uh, I've been very fortunate how uh, I've wound up with people you would not believe were involved in comedy, and uh, when you get laughs out of them. You, you've done something important. Well, well your contributions mean, have been equally important because, you know, a lot of these people wouldn't even be on the map without you. I mean, we're talking about Joanne Worley, Ruth Buzzy, Goldie Hawn, as you had mentioned, Judy Karn, Gary Owens, Lily you uh, brought to a national audience. Lily Tomlin. I mean, they, they, they were all these young character people. You were involved with the Laughing Revival. Yeah. So then you helped bring uh, Robin Williams onto that show. Yes, we did. And Robin, we found Robin Williams before he'd been seen. So uh, we found I saw him in San Francisco. He's barefoot, wearing coveralls, and a straw hat, and he had a fish pole. And he had the audit fish pole out of the audience. And he says, "I'm fishing for assholes." Well, uh, I got that on the air, and uh, it was hysterical. And I found this young man who just invented characters. So every time we would have a break when we were taping the show, we'd have a break, I'd put Robin out there to just make things up. What a genius he was. And I'm, I'm very fortunate to have been a part of his career. But his first television was on shows I did. And I would just put him out there, and he would make up stuff, which was brilliant, brilliant comedy mind. And, uh, so we've been very fortunate to have a few of those people. Lily Tomlin, 
And you don't just find Lily Tomlin because when she arrived, she arrived six or eight different people. And uh, how much, how much, how lucky do you have to be, right? And can you believe that? I mean, so many of the people who were on Laughing, I mean, we're talking 50 years later, they're still working and they're still the most sought after talents in the industry, yourself included. Yeah, well, uh, a lot of it had to do with luck and a lot of it had to do with looking at failure as, as a, a step towards success. You know, I, and I, I did. I did the biggest flop ever on television, the shortest series in the history of television. I did a show that was canceled after 15 minutes. <laughs> you know, you want to hear a funny failure, and and it went on to become of historical importance because they canceled it because it was the first show ever that looked like that, using all the new technology. But the guy in Cleveland wanted to keep Peyton Place on the air, so he called all the affiliates and uh, convinced them they had to cancel this show. It was called Turn On, and it's in the book of records. Twenty minute cancellation after twenty minutes on the air. It's someone who was really funny, who I know you were friends with and who was active with the Friars Club, was uh, Johnny Carson, who was a hero of oh mine. Boy. And I n- understand you were whale watching with Johnny. What do you remember about Johnny in those retirement years uh, when you'd uh, see him and get together and you'd go out on the boat or you'd have lunch or dinner? When he went, John Johnny, when he decided to retire, you know, he was, he was uh, uh, all blocked because he had all of that energy and all that humor and no place to put. We had dinner one night with Barbara Sinatra and Frank Sinatra, and Johnny Carson was sitting at the table, and he stood up and he did about a 15-minute monologue just with the four people sitting there. He was compulsively funny, and he was, he was a person you could approach with any idea. One time, Dick Martin had a problem and didn't show up. So I went across the hall to Johnny Carson. I said, would you come over and read Dick Martin's cards? And he said, why? I said, because Dick Martin didn't show up. So Johnny Carson said, all right. So we went across the hall, and you ought to see that clip package. Johnny Carson played Dick Martin. And it doesn't sound like much, but it was hysterical. And uh, it was one of the funniest things we ever did. Johnny Carson was a joke junkie. He loved to laugh. He loved the sound of laughter. You're in a very advantageous position to be talking about an event that features comedy and features comics. And I remember all of the people that we've watched there. Don Rickles got his big start doing the Friars Rose. And uh, the, the Friars show was the lone place where people got up to just be funny. And boy, those roasts were funny. So God, wh- what were some of the other roasts that you got to attend over these? You mentioned Jack Benny. We talked a little bit about Aaron Spelling. Uh, what were some of the other events and things that you went to at the Friars over the years? Oh, God, we did Dinah. We did, well, of course, Rickles. Rickles was a, a staple, you know. And everybody who was anybody uh, was subjected to those roasts. And the comics would all show up and uh, and literally attack those people. So, I mean, the list, the list would we'd be on the phone for an hour if you start talking about all the people who were honored in the Friars. But that format and that group of people devoted entirely to celebrating uh, making us laugh it was a very worthwhile organization. It's wonderful to see that you're doing it still, you know. Uh, the only thing now is the material. Uh, we don't need to be dirty. I mean, all those language barriers that we have, put them in the middle of a sentence, okay, but they're not the joke. Suddenly they have replaced the joke. But uh, the original Friars Roast were not just body. They, they spent weeks working on those monologues, those those pieces that they did, slowly. and the, of course the Jack Benny was was classic, but they did Ronald Reagan, they did the Paul the Kennedys, 
I mean, it was a wonderful format for the purpose of the Friars Club was to make people laugh. And it's a worthwhile endeavor and, and uh, occupation. If you can make people laugh, maybe maybe uh, laughter is what will save us. Oh, oh, we've talked quite a bit about many of the friars that you've known and worked with, uh, and we've talked about your own career, which has lasted, and the legacies of so many of these performers has lasted over the years. But why do you think that the Friars Club has lasted and been so vital and remained such a source of fascination for people inside and outside the show business after almost 120 years in existence? Because it was an original. It was an original where they combined funny people talking about a victim and the people that they got to be honored uh, to convince them to do it was an achievement. But, I mean, Don Rickles just attacked people. And uh, uh, the Smothers Brothers and Shelley Berman and Shecky Green, they, they stood up there. They worked, sometimes they worked for weeks preparing that six minutes tribute to the honorees of the Friars. The Friars Club made a major contribution to what today is known as the talk uh, shows, and uh, the panel shows, uh, but it, at that point, uh, the editing was not where it is today, so they had to put the Friars Club out there, and whatever they said went on the air. So that was dangerous. So the element of danger, humor, and combining outrageous people to stand up there and talk about uh, celebrities, it was a wonderful format, remains today a wonderful format. The only thing is today, so much of the material on television is already body, you know, and so there's no surprises left. There's so much we've left on the table today. Dean Martin, Sammy Davis Jr., Dinah Shore, Paul Winchell was on laughing. That was uh, one of my favorite bits that you guys did. I, yes. I, I could talk to you all day long, but uh, I, I should let you go. And before I let you go, I want to make sure I give another plug to your excellent book, Still Laughing, A Life in comedy from the creator of Laugh-In. George Schlatter, you are somebody who I have uh, wanted to talk to for many years as a, an admirer of uh, the golden age of entertainment. So all I can say is it's been an honor and a privilege to talk with you, and thank you for making the time to talk to me. And uh, congratulations on the theater up in Jamestown, and congratulations on all of your success with this book. And I hope maybe we can talk again soon and chat about more of your legendary career and some of the amazing people that you've known and worked with and been friends with. Thank you. This has been a lot of fun, and uh, I hope people read uh, Still Laughing, and I hope, I hope they uh, take it as a, as a lifestyle, as a goal, as something to make you feel good. It's better than a hot bath and a martini, you know? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it was great fun. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Friars Club Podcast. Please be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. For more information on the Friars Club, please visit FriarsClub.com. We hope to see you there.